is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything. And that's life, love, art, history, sports, politics. And one of the themes of the show is kids and parents. We love Dr. Rose because she treats, as a real-life doctor, over 5,000 patients in North Carolina. And so many of the young people particularly have all kinds of problems that some people think they need medication for. But what they really need is a parent who knows how to properly parent And she's been coaching parents, not the kids, coaching parents on how to parent better. And we love having her on to talk about those problems. And something caught my eye the other day uh, in my little uh, local newspaper, and that's the Oxford Eagle. And we broadcast here out of Oxford, Mississippi, a beautiful little town just south of Memphis. And we come out of a college town for a reason. Uh, You can talk about what college kids are doing and going through, but, you know, we're here and we're amongst them. And it's... uh, it's always good to understand the next generation coming up and not have opinions about them, but sort of know them. And this segment is really more about the parents than the kids, because I stumble across a beautiful postcard in that paper, and it says the hub at Oxford. And it's got a picture of all kinds of beautiful surroundings, and it looks like a vacation resort. It looks like a beautiful senior facility. And I turn it over, and I turn it around, and it says apartment features. And I think, wow, this is pretty nice. And then it says community amenities. And then it says, for your students, for our students. Oh, nice. Wonderful, right? And I'm thinking that's nice. You know, you want to really, you want your kid to experience. What was your, what what were your student experiences like? I mean, mine was like my student housing was a bunker (laughs) and and like a heating pot for ramen noodles. That was it. There wasn't even a window. It was a bunker. Ramen noodles? Ramen noodles. Ramen noodles. It's Raymond in New Jersey. It is. In New Jersey, it's Raymond. (laughs) And, and so I'm looking at this thing, and so I, I want to let you know what the hub at Oxford is offering the kiddies. And by the way, this tells you about the parents, not the kids. So here are the amenities. The apartment features first. Fully furnished with custom-designed furniture. Custom-designed, because we wouldn't thought, want the darlings to have anybody else's furniture. Hmm. It's got gourmet kitchens with stainless steel appliances because we wouldn't want the precious ones to have like some of those black appliances. Stainless steel for the kids. Custom cabinetry. And get this, because you know the kids need this. Granite countertops. Oh, that for a mica. What would they do? Now it gets better. 42-inch TV in each living room. Wow. 42-inch, not 30, not 37. Like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. 42, it is. What, what about the bathrooms? TVs in the bathrooms? Oh, not, no, not quite. Yeah, Telephone, yeah. though. 24 karat gold toilet. Exactly. <laughs> Wood flooring. Oh, my goodness, because we wouldn't. Ha- what would we do with mm. laminate? Ah. Or shag carpet. Oh, shag carpet. Porcelain tile bathrooms. Ah. Built-in mini bar, because that's what the kids need. More access to alcohol. <laughs> Washer and dryer in every unit. My goodness, a laundry mat. Oh, what would we do? Individual key entry in bedrooms. Okay, that's safety. I get that. Ceiling fans in each bedroom. That's okay. Solid core bedroom doors for reduced sounds. That might imply that someone's studying, but who now? Who who knows what else it might reduce the sound of? And then of course, <laughs> private patios and balconies, because every kid needs his own balcony. But then it gets fun because here are the community amenities. And this is where I think I'm moving into the hub next year, Hmm. and I'm going to enroll in Ole Miss. And I'm really, I'm going to make that declaration right now. That will be the first book I do. It'll be called Back to School, because I think it's time for some adults to do some adult supervision on what the adults are paying for for these crazy kids. It's not the kids' fault. Listen to this. 
zero-entry resort-style pool. By What's the way, that? zero-entry means there are no steps. So that, that, that aggravation <laughs> of having to walk down you steps is now gone. Lowered into the pool by a cloud. Exactly. (laughs) Get this. This is very important. It's got a 60-person capacity hot tub with islands. That's like human noodle soup. That's sort of gross. That is sort of gross. Sand volleyball (laughs) and brand new basketball courts. Here's my favorite. Outdoor putting green. Because, you know, the kid's not going to be able to make it to play a full 18 or 9, but you're keeping your short game sharp. Which is not an indoor putting green. It's not an indoor putting green. So true. Now, this is very, very important. Tanning salon. Very, very important. And equally important are the steam rooms and saunas. Because, you know, after a really tough day taking those three or four classes, your kid needs that zero-entry pool to get a little dip and then needs the sauna. And, of course, after all that, a little tanning bed. I'm not finished. Outdoor fire pits and barbecue stations. Business center with printers. I don't know what they're going to print. I don't know when they're going to be in the business center. Private study rooms, sunbathing decks, because, my goodness, if the tanning booth isn't working for you, Uh. you can get the real thing. (laughs) It's nice to have that kind of option and choice. And my favorite, hanging oversized and padded hammocks. I love this. So I'm just thinking, these kids are living better than us. We work for a living, and these kids are living better than us. We're going to go and visit the hub at Oxford. We're going to bring, in fact, we have a, a brand new employee here, and I think this will be her first assignment. <laughs> Going over to the hub, I can just imagine, what, I'm looking at this pool facility, and it looks like one of those pools in Cancun. Hmm. And so you're thinking, okay, that's what you want to do with kids who've just gotten to college. Give them a big old pool, a mini bar, a sauna, and a putting green. My goodness. It's not so, like they're going to expect anything after this four years either, right? Well, that's <laughs> true. So Faith, our, our, our brand new employee here, is going to go over one day with a little camera and a little microphone and interview the kids about the hub. What, what's missing, by the way? Do they have any complaints? Like, did the hub miss some things? Uh, do they not have good top-shelf liquor? What might be <laughs> the things the hub's missing? There's no, no valet parking here. This, I think, could really be a catching point. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And every once in a while, and it's rare, we'll go on some riffs of our own. But this one is just a story. It really is a story about our culture. And by the way, these kinds of residences are popping up all over this country. And where the colleges are spending their money Mm -hmm. is in their student unions, in their college sports stadiums, Mm -hmm. on all the stuff that has nothing to do with your kid getting ahead in their life. And who's allowing it? The adults. My parents would have never paid for this. They didn't pay for my hot plate. So I'm just telling you. Or your Raymonds. Or my Raymonds or my Ramens. <laughs> this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the story of the hub at Oxford, in Oxford, at Ole Miss. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love talking to Heidi Mitchell, who writes for the Wall Street Journal and does their Burning Question column. And we've had fun with Heidi, and we're about to welcome her now. But before we do, we have to point out that this Caribbean music and this reggae music that she's listening to, uh, she may not be hearing a lot of it in her new hometown. She has just moved from the digs of Brooklyn to the great city of Chicago, and we welcome a new Chicagoan to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, we'll see how the Midwest can handle me. Oh, well, let me tell you, the, the, deep, dish, <laughs> the deep dish pizza alone, and look, you're going to have a pizza war. The New York people are going to say their pizza is the best. The Chicago people are going to say theirs. You know what I say to both of them? Exactly. You're both exactly right. <laughs> now pass the pie. Like, is it pizza? We'll have to see. Is the it jury's pizza? Out. Exactly. It's more like lasagna with bread. <laughs> well, that, anyway. that could be a burning question at some point, Heidi. <laughs> what is pizza really? What is it really and where did it come from? I love it. What is, well, you know, this week it is, uh, it is a simple question. And that is, what are the best home remedies for sunburn? And before we start things out, Heidi, what is sunburn? So I found this interesting because, you know, I, I'm, one, I'm pretty dark, so I, I don't think I've ever burned in my whole life. And, um, you know, so, so I was talking to um, Dr. Susan Chone at the um, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and so we were talking about, you know, skin types and what burning really means. So basically, there's something called the Fitzpatrick Skin Type Scale, and it, it starts with one, which is um, basically if you, have, if you have fair skin, maybe freckles, red hair, you're probably a one and blue eyes, and you're probably a one, and um, you probably will never tan. Like, your body just doesn't release melanin, and you will just always burn. And you know people like that. And then there's people on the other end of the spectrum who have increased pigment. Um, She used an Indian woman as an example. I'm probably in that. I'm like a Mediterranean kind of thing. And I'm, uh, she said I'm probably a type six. So I'll probably never burn and probably easily tan. Um, But she also said, She's met, you know, fair-skinned ranchers that in Texas where she lives, and they're out in the sun all day, and they don't burn, you know, show signs of cancer or anything like that. But basically what happens is to anybody's skin is that, you know, you're exposed to these ultraviolet rays. That's what the sun's b- delivering down, you know, th- this week especially, you know, tons of ultraviolet ra- rays, which are bad for your skin. So your skin responds by releasing cells that signal the blood vessels to dilate. So that's, you know, a lot of, imagine if you got a cut, right? Your red, red blood, blood, blood vessels go there and it turns red, right? To help, help fix it, help heal it. Yep. So it's an immune response, this reddening. So when it turns red, it swells, it becomes, you know, pink and painful and it, it heat is coming off of it. And so that draws moisture from it. So it dries out and it gives a sense of tightness. So that's what a sunburn is, is basically your immune response to too much ultraviolet rays. And it's just damaging. Basically, it's really damaging the skin. And I'm a Mediterranean type, too. I've had one sunburn in my whole life. And it came recently. I hadn't been in the sun in a long time. I was in L.A. And I decided to swim about two miles from the uh, Santa Monica Pier all the way down past Venice Beach. And my back, I didn't put anything on my back. And my shoulders got crushed. Um, and you first, know it's reflecting off of the water. It was the water. Yeah. It was the water. Terrible. And I just, I always, I lifeguarded in, in uh, New Jersey Shore, and I always put the, the, the stuff on. And I always swam at 6 a.m., not at 2 in the afternoon on a 100-degree day in L.A. So I got that burn. So now let's talk about those who get sunburn. Uh, what 
what works, Heidi? What doesn't and why? So there's ton- of course the first thing you want to talk about is prevention, right? The ideal is to not get sunburned. So right. you want to wear clothing that has UV protection or just stay out of the sun. Then you want to wear sunblock. Um, you know, I think 30 is pretty much as good. It's fine. 30 is great. I think anything above that is hard to nail. But you want to do, um, a, they call it a physical block. So zinc oxide is really the magic potion. Yep. Um, there's lots of other kinds of sunblocks out there. But So that's the first thing is you want to try and prevent the whole thing. But if you do get sunburned, um, now you might not know that you have been burnt because you've turned brown. You spent the whole day at the beach. You've burnt. You've gone to brown because your body then releases the melanin, which is it's sort of like um, almost like wearing clothing. Like it releases this darker um, pigment that's supposed to shield you from the sun. It's kind of interesting. The body is really is really smart. So you may have already burnt and then turns brown. People call that like a base tan, but really it's not good for you. <laughs> so once you're already burnt and you feel this kind of burning sensation, you know, you can feel it. It hurts on your shoulders when you move them. Um, a great thing to do is to cool yourself down. So your, your body temperature has gone up. Your skin feels hot. So a cool bath is really an easy way to go. You want to get into a nice cool bath like tepid or room temperature a little cooler and cool your whole body down you don't want to use ice packs or anything like ice directly on the skin because that can tear the skin and also just do bad things to the nerves so that's like the easiest solution and if you want to go a little bit professional um this is a great one i love it is you want to take oatmeal and put it in a sock and put that into the cool bath and you don't want to, she pointed this out that you don't want to just put the oatmeal right into the bath because it will clog up your drain, which I thought that's interesting that the doctor told me about plumbing issues. Yep, yep. But you know, anyway, that, that the oatmeal is a natural anti-inflammatory. And so it should constrict those blood vessels and ease the swelling and some of the redness. And some people do the same thing with, with tea. Um, it's usually black tea or green tea. You, you know, you put the tea bags in the cool bath, and it will dilute it because it's pretty um, acidic. And it will, but it will dilute it enough that it feels good on your skin. Um, and then, like the favorite one of every kind of health professional and 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 homeopathic remedy person is cold milk because it's rich in protein and anti-inflammatory benefits. So the proteins can help repair that skin. So you just soak a washcloth in some milk wring it out and place it on the burned area. And there's a billion other ones, um, you know, like creating a paste out of cornstarch or baking soda and making it kind of like a plaster over your burn or taking cool cucumbers if you have them in your garden and just scooping out the insides and, and making it kind of like a, almost like a gel and putting that on. I, I grew up in Arizona and we used um, aloe vera. We would just pull them off of the, pluck the leaves, break them in half yep. and, you know, put that on directly onto the burn and it really helped. Oh, it's, it's like magic. I've done that myself. And, and by the way, all these homespun remedies, which you'd think, oh, that's just grandma's remedy. This is a real life doctor at UTMD Anderson Cancer Center telling you about what works and doesn't work. Not, you know, yeah, she's an expert in cancer. too. Yeah, so this is what yeah, she knows. Yeah. And what about yeah. things we can find in drugstores, Heidi? What works there? So, you know, I would first start with pain because, um, you know, it's inflammation, it's, it's a burn, it hurts. So you want to take the pain down. So ibuprofen, just a daily dose, is a good way to start. That, that will, you know, bring down the pain and help you stop touching it and that sort of stuff, maybe help you sleep at night. Um, and then she also says there are, you know, like I said, aloe vera, you can buy it in gel form at the drugstore. Um, she knows 
that she uses, Arnica cream, which um, which is typically used for um, athletes. They use it on muscle injuries, mm-hmm. but it also helps, um, you know, with that red blood vessel kind of disbursement. And then um, calendula, which is often used for eczema, and that helps bring the burn feeling down. And then witch hazel, um, but you have to use um, a certain kind of it because otherwise it's too um, it's too acidic. Um, so anyway, it has, it has anti-inflammatory tannins in it, like tea and antibacterial properties. So especially, um, if the burn's really severe, but if the skin is broken, you don't want to use anything like, like witch hazel that's going to be too acidic. It would probably hurt. So It'll if, just if the skin is broken, like you have blisters, yep. which can happen from a sunburn, then you want to stick to just the cool bath, maybe some oatmeal, an oatmeal sock in there. Well, these are the best. It. These are the best home remedies, and some in the drugstores for sunburn. And Heidi has just moved to Chicago with her husband. And I think one of the things you're not going to have to worry about there, although maybe it's possible, Heidi, at, at Lake Michigan uh, or, or at the lake when you want to just uh, catch some rays, that it could happen there. But I think sunburning may be the least of your problems. Frostbite might be something we'll talk about <laughs> at another it. time. No, I'm just kidding. You know what, though? I think in places where it's unexpectedly warm where you expect it to be cold. You're unprepared. And that's probably where you do get burned more often. Like I put on sunblock every day in the summer in New York, but maybe I'll all year actually, because the sun is strong even in the winter yep. on my face. But, um, and when you're skiing and stuff like that, but maybe in places where you don't expect the sun to be strong, you, that's where you get burned because you're like, I don't need sunblock today. Yeah, nah. you, your guard goes down and you're exposed. Yeah. Heidi Mitchell, as always, a pleasure to have you on. The burning question, the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And uh, good luck with the move. And we'll be talking again in the next week or two. Next time from Chicago. <laughs> you bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Catch all of our work on ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, sports, history, art, love, death, and of course, marriage is so important, and we talk about the good and the ugly and the in-between, because, well, if you're going to talk about marriage, you have to talk about all of it, so people can understand what stage they're going through and feel less alone at no matter what stage they're going through in that relationship. And a good marriage, as we know, can change everything. And that's why we talk about this subject each week with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak, who is a board member of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education, and that's NARMI, and the former executive director of Great Marriages, Sheboygan. And Deb will be joining us in the next segment. But first, we go to our Marriage on the Mind segment, and Deb brings us a topic that may be a little uncomfortable, 
but all too real for so many of us, emotional affairs. Here's her conversation with a woman named Lana. Um, I've been married for um, 34 years. I have five children, um, and I've been um, working at the place. I, I love yeah. my job. I love what I do, and, and um, yeah, it is, it is fulfilling in, in many ways that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and are you a faith-based individual or non-faith-based person? Um, yes, I've, I've known um, the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior um, ever since I was a young child. I'm a pastor's daughter, um, so I'm real used to um, having a mom and dad in the Word and, and mm-hmm. prayer warriors, and um, that heritage um, was strong and given yeah. strong. Yeah, and that's, that's a big thing, too, because that sets a lot of um, pieces in place that help us through difficult times and good times and, and just helps us in our decision-making and things like that. Um, one of the things that you've encountered, though, is like in the last 20 years or so, there's been a relationship that's developed at work, hasn't it? Right, right. Yeah, tell us about that. Um, well, as, as any, um, it starts out. Um, in a sense, um, you just um, converse and talk, and um, I am emotionally kind of deprived um, with my husband. So it was it was an easy um, thing to happen, um, and it just started out um, mainly um, conversing, and and he's really good about giving feedback, and I don't have that um, in my marriage. Um, right. So. I shared a lot of things and shared even family things, and we can talk literally about everything, politics, family, child-raising, life. Um, it makes it so easy to want mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it has been um, 20 years now that I yeah. have had an emotional affair as such. <laughs> so talking a little bit about your husband, help me understand where he's at, he just is very unemotional. It seems to be his personality. Um, he doesn't seem to be able to open up verbally about where he is. Um, that's why I've struggled so much because he, I've been with him 34 years, and it's like I still don't really know his heart um, right. and what he really wants out of life or a relationship. He um, is the type of personality that just kind of takes whatever comes his way, whether it be good or bad, and he seems to accept that as that's what's supposed to happen. And I'm a planner and um, probably too much of a fixer or controller, maybe. I don't know. Um, And I like to figure things out and work on things. And he just seems very comfortable and complacent um, in this relationship, and that's what makes it hard. It's like... He's like a, almost oblivious to emotional things. Um, he does invest time in, in the children and the grandchildren, and and he doesn't really verbally open up there, but he still gives a lot of investment, but he doesn't seem to be able to invest the time um, in a marriage relationship um, or with me. At the beginning, what would you say attracted you to each other? What was it like? Um, actually, I think probably 
the, what I consider his weakness now, I consider it a strength. A lot of times that your strengths are your weaknesses also. Um, what attracted me would have been his calmness and his, his ability to not react. Um, his I'm kind of hyper and out there, and he was real level. Mm-hmm. So, and not, not affected by things going on around him. Yeah. And that emotional affair at work, has it impacted your family life at home at all, or is that home business as usual? No, I'm a very emotional person, so, yeah, it affects. It, um, I don't know where I am um, half the time because emotionally I'm, I'm with this other person, and when I'm home, it's just you're just kind of in robot mode and, and trying right. to... Um, to what you need to do for your family and those right. obligations and just kind of keep going, but you're so divided. Um, right. It's like you don't really know who you are because you're right. trying to be two people in a yeah. way. Yeah. And it's like you never quite know where you fit in because right. it just gets very confusing. Right. And, um, you know, one of my Christian friends said um, that, you know, who the master is of confusion is Satan. And and I realize that um, that doesn't always stop you from wanting that emotional feeding, even though you know the truth. Yeah. So have you talked to your husband pretty straightforward on any of these issues, or have you not told him about this? Um, yeah, in the last year... Um, the person that I was having an emotional affair with um, was divorced, and that really affected me um, mm. to the point that I did um, I kind of uh, broke down because <laughs> it changed dynamics, you know, in a way that way too. And um, yeah, just, yeah, he knows. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to I'd tell him, you know, why it was kind of emotionally falling apart. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of unfortunately mm-hmm. he knows, but kind of that's the mm-hmm. person I am. I just, yeah. I don't hide hide feelings well. <laughs> right. right. Did, what was his response to that? You know, you. I mean, that takes a pretty bold step to say, hey, listen, this is what I'm dealing with. Was he, Did he respond at all or in any way seeking help or anything? Um, no, he pretty because he's unemotional. He's he was pretty responsive, unresponsive, oh. I should say, and just kind of you know acknowledged you know that I was um, struggling, but yeah. uh, believed that I would not take it you know any farther, and believed that I could just continue the the communication and the emotional feeding. Um, right. So he trusted me to do that, and I haven't been doing very well um, yeah. with that because I feel like this other person um, reads me like a book. <laughs> it's like yeah. he, he knows almost what I'm thinking sometimes, and yeah. to be known like that is pretty special. <laughs> and yeah. so it, it's hard to just stop. You know, it's like biblically I know what's right. Emotionally, I'm on a whole different page. I will tell you what, even though your husband 
doesn't show a lot of emotion. I think sometimes our actions even speak louder than words. And if he knew that you left that place and went to work somewhere else and was just even in just that point alone, uh, making a decision to honor your marriage commitment, just imagine how he would feel and how you would have a whole new adventure and maybe a new lease on life. You're not sure what to say after listening to that. Very powerful. When we come back, we're going to talk about Lana's testimony, because that's what it was, really, in confession. With Deb Olniak after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories and Marriage on the Mind segment. We do is a weekly segment. We don't do a whole lot of weekly segments, and that's how important marriage is to this show. And you just heard some really, really raw testimony, real raw confession of a woman struggling with a problem. And Lana, it took a lot of courage for her to do what she did. And she's in a pickle, Deb. And so is her husband. And her marriage is at a crossroads, no doubt. And uh, joining us is Deb Wolniak, and again, former executive director of Great Marriages at Sheboygan County and also National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education board member, and that's NARMI. And Deb Wolniak, uh, just, you know, this is something you hear, and these emotional relationships are perhaps worse in many respects than the sexual ones. Um, yeah. And talk about that and, and how often you encounter these things. Uh, in your practice and in, in your experience? Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of it goes unnoticed and a lot of it goes unsaid. Uh, you know, statistically, the people that will confess that they've had either emotional affairs or dating affairs is only 17%. I beg to differ. It's probably as close up to 40%. Um, you know, the numbers are skewed because people don't always come forward on these things yep. because they're fearful of getting fired. <clears throat> they're fearful of... Uh, maybe what their spouse will think, uh, losing their uh, home, their families. It's a major problem because people are not finding fulfillment in their marriage because they don't know how to be married well. They're lacking intimacy, and I'm not talking like sexual intimacy. I'm talking financial intimacy, emotional intimacy. They want it, but they don't know how to get it in their marriage. And the casual bonding relationship of a coworker, especially of the opposite sex, can really take hold fast. And you don't, sometimes don't even realize it's happening. And that is what's so dangerous about a workplace affair. Um, it is an emotional engagement. It does cause bonding. But here's the interesting thing. If you are lacking somewhere in your marriage and you start seeing yourself bend toward an emotional affair, look at why you're doing it. Are you lacking somewhere in your marriage and you're trying to supplement with that emotional affair? Most likely, yes. But you got to take a moment and really be honest with yourself on where that is and literally stop the bleeding and get out of that atmosphere. And, and I, it could be like, stop going to lunch with this person. Stop having private business meetings with this person. Stop gossiping with this person. Just stop it. 
I mean, literally, you cannot keep putting yourself in there. Oh, I can handle it. I'll, I'll be fine. Suddenly, you find yourself in a totally different kind of situation where it's just not emotional. It could go physical pretty fast. You bet. And and she did say some some really tough things though about her marriage. She said about her husband, thirty four years I was married to him, and I don't know his heart. She also said he's oblivious to the emotional things in life. And she also said he doesn't invest time in the children or with me, uh, which was fascinating, Deb. She also said that his strength is now his weakness, that she had fallen in love with him precisely because he was a little distant and calm. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, this strength is now a weakness. And I feel for this guy, too. I feel for both of them. But yeah. the answer always isn't that wonderful, uh, what seemingly is a wonderful relationship at work. Because my, my, my goodness, you get that divorce, the answer mm-hmm. isn't always, let me get the divorce, this is my new magical soulmate. Uh, that can also right. be a, a real trick uh, mm-hmm. in, in life. And how often have you seen people uh, just sort of give up on their marriage, pursue that emotional affair, and suddenly as they pursue that emotional affair as a real-life relationship, Suddenly mm-hmm. that thing falls apart, too. By the way, I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've counseled friends away from these workplace romances because in the end, you've got to fix your marriage. You've got to try. I mean, by the way, they don't all work out, and we talk about the here on this show. But too often people bail on their marriages early, only to then have the second divorce, then the third divorce, and then one day they realize, heck, maybe it's me. Maybe i got to learn <laughs> how to communicate better. Maybe I, maybe I don't do this marriage thing well enough. So talk right. about that because, you know, you don't want to keep people in horrible marriages. That's, no. that's a death sentence. And yet right. you don't want people to bail prematurely because right over the hump, if you work at it, you might rekindle that marriage, love the things you loved about that guy all along, and get them into some good coaching situations. And the next right. thing you know, you've saved the marriage. Absolutely. So I'll use a really good real-life example. Prepare and Enrich is an assessment tool, tool we used at Great Marriages and was excellent at helping uncover what are the things that are the challenges in this relationship. So with that, that Prepare and Enrich piece, you can actually identify where the target areas are, where the challenge areas are, and start working on that. Now I'm going to tell you what, this couple is a great example where one of the individuals wants to be fully engaged and fully available, but doesn't know how. And the other one, who knows where his heart is at? He may love his wife deeply, but he's actually maybe even afraid because she's come to him with some pretty powerful statements. I'm having an emotional affair at work. What are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? And there's like this non-responsive. You almost have to like shock him awake almost. Yep. But the, he, he does need coaching. That is absolutely 100% clear because they're not doing marriage well. The other thing that um, I think is also a danger is this other individual is now divorced. And this temptation to just cut and run is so huge right now. I can't even tell you. I've encouraged this individual to literally go and get a different job. Staying in this workplace is in front of you every day. You can see the torment that happens day in and day out for her. It is not going to get better unless you make some changes. And the biggest thing for her is she has to have enough courage to love herself enough to take the right steps to not only protect her own heart, but to protect her marriage. And she has not had the um, support around them in like an environment that you can have that mentoring piece going and you can see that it's just absolutely needed. 
what's interesting to me is people who are in workplace environments um, actually know what a good marriage looks like. They could identify it from miles away, but to somehow apply it to their lives is really hard because, well, I got this, I got this, and all these pressures come in. But let me tell you what, everybody's got pressure and you will be tempted at the workplace at some point in some time in your life to potentially have that affair. To say that it would never happen is crazy, unless you're just all with the guys or all with the girls, and that's you know, just not your thing, then you're fine. But to feel accepted, to be respected, to be heard, to have somebody empathize with you, all really, really good qualities that we sometimes actually do really well in the workplace. Yep. We literally have to stop and learn how to do that in our home, especially around year seven. If you got two and a half kids and you're paying the bills and the two cars and the mortgage and you're like feeling like you're not even being seen as a person anymore, that's a red flag. You need to stop and get out on a date and start talking about what matters to both of you, your goals again, your dreams again. And it needs to be together, not separately. It's not a me relationship. It's a we relationship. And if you don't have the we, forget it. So you're going to be uphill climbing the whole way. Please, 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 if you're listening to this and you're tempted to have a workplace emotional affair, don't even go there. Save yourself the pain. Nothing good is going to come of it. (laughs) Get back with your spouse or your significant other and start working on that relationship. That literally is your relationship and it can be better and it will be better you just have to work on it now in those cases Devin, you've counseled and you've coached and you're a coach more than a counselor and we talk about that often and the difference mm-hmm. but in a minute here there are those cases where what if he becomes and stays emotionally unavailable what if he says i don't want to coach mm-hmm. i don't want to bother no it's okay. not important to me then what mm-hmm. then what well this is where the rubber hits the road i'm going to use a different example because i think people would understand this part even a little easier What if you have a spouse that has a severe car accident and cannot function physically as they once did? Maybe even their brain waves are different. Maybe it's changed their personality. Um, This causes huge, massive stress on a marriage. Does it mean it's going to be easy? No. Does it mean that, oh, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to move on, see you later. I mean, it's going to be your decision, right? But here's the thing. Sometimes we have spouses that don't fit our Prince Charming mold and we've made a commitment and we made a promise and we need to continue to not only be married well within the circumstances we are now given, but to nurture ourselves and our soul in such a way from other spaces and places that are healthy that will encourage us along the way, especially in a difficult marriage, because I'm telling you. We all have them, some worse than others. But to stay the course and show even your children that no matter what, this spouse, even if I disagree with them wholeheartedly, and even though this is very difficult to go through, I'm going to stick by them. Now, the caveat to that is one of the one things that is an exception to that is a situation of abuse, okay? Physical abuse. Some people could say that this couple is going through an emotional abuse. Those things need some additional counseling and support and possibly some physical separation that needs clinical help and also rehabilitation in the hope that they may come back together one day when those accountability measures are met. 
And that's a very, very specific path that you cannot mess around with. So be careful. Be very careful and be wise. And please seek wisdom as well as counseling if you need it. Well, thanks as always. And we're talking to Deb Wolniak. It's our Marriage on the Mind segment. And say a prayer for Lana. What a tough situation for her and her husband. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all of the Marriage on the Mind segments. American stories, and we love to celebrate just about every aspect of American life. And there's no more aspect more central to American life than the car, but also laughs. And Americans love to have fun, and they love to have fun with all kinds of toys. And sometimes they just love to have fun at a comedy club, too. And if America's created something better than almost anyone else in the world, it's the automobile and it's the comedian. And what do you know? Back by popular demand, Comedian Adam Ferrara, he played Chief Needles Nelson in the Emmy-nominated Emmy FX series Rescue Me, one of our favorites in our family, and on Showtime's Nurse Jackie. He's also been on the big screen and the big stage, but perhaps his coolest job has been hosting Top Gear US, testing, racing, and braking all kinds of wheeled vehicles. Adam is also a touring comedian. Go to adamferrara.com to see if he's coming to a town near you, and whatever you do, don't give him your car keys. Adam it's great to back. Great to have you back on, and t- let's talk about your life in the fast lane, if we could. How are you? I'm good, pal. I'm just I'm visualizing Sammy Hagar in that rubber suit from the I Can't Drive '55 video because you just you just stuck the song song in my head. Yeah, we can't. We're sorry to do that to you, and that's a picture you're going to have to either get out of your head or get past through this interview. No, that's a great that's a great driving song. No, it is a great driving song. Very often, though, they're great songs to drive through. But the actual human beings, I mean, I love ZZ Top, but, I, you know, the, the picture of them in my head is not necessarily inspiring. They're not the handsomest band in the world, but my goodness, they are the <laughs> fiercest band in the world. There's a great story. Um, you watch Live from Daryl's House. Oh, um, yeah. Daryl Hall. Yep. So they ZZ Top episode with Billy Gibbons, who, another, another monster car guy. Yep. Um, he, uh, he said uh, he, they picked up his guitar and he goes, these strings are really light. And Billy Gibbons said, I used to have the heavy strings. And then I met B.B. King, and his was light. And I said, B.B., why are your strings so light? And he said, I don't want to work that hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you bend the string, if you hear that tone that Stevie Ray Vaughan used to get, he had a wound third string, which is, gives it that big, full, rich sound, but it's a pain in the ass to bend. You bet. Um, I play guitar. It's like, I, I, I don't I'll, I'll, let, let me clarify. I play bar band guitar. I like to know the beginnings of every great song. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, uh, and I saw his Cadzilla too, uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, Peterson Museum took me into the basement and they had Cadzilla down there, which I, I'm going to say a 47, I could be wrong, caddy, he put suicide doors on, 
But uh, yeah, that was really cool. You know, those guys make make a racket with a little tiny band. I mean, it, it's three guys and they they make a racket, and there's not there's nothing quite like a yeah. ZZ Top the show. Three guys, yeah, three guys. I mean, that that seems to be the magic number. That's, and our show is three guys. And I spoke to uh, our show, meaning Top Gear. I spoke to uh, Andy Wilman when we first did the show. Andy Wilman created the uh, format for Top Gear with Jeremy Clarkson, uh, and that's the one we know. And we're that's the mothership. And when we did our first season, we did a press event with them in London. He said, three's the right number. He said, you know, two is just, you know, a couple. Four is too many. Three is a gang, and it leaves room for the audience to be in there with you. Yeah, well, the audience is the fourth. The audience is like that fourth person. But three is yeah. just you get some dynamics with three that you don't get with two. You know, that actually leads mm-hmm. me to something, Adam, because you're a car guy, but you're also a comedian. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're coming yeah. up upon Abbott and Costello, an anniversary. And there was a time right. when two-man comedy used to be really big, and you had Nichols and May. And, and what, mm-hmm. what happened to that format? Did, did, did one day everyone say, I'm just a solo act? What happened to the two-man? I don't, I, I think it, well, it came from vaudeville, from what I, you know, from my, uh, my understanding. So yep. they, they were vaudeville comedians. So they, uh, then, then um, TV comes in, and ra- well, then they were on radio together. So it went from vaudeville to radio. Um, and uh, their show was so popular, uh, it became, uh, I think once something gets popular, then the format is duplicated. You know, it's like our show. They, they, I think, uh, I don't know what the first comedy team was, um, but I think once that got popular, um, everyone started doing it. And, yeah, I don't uh, think, I don't think so either of the Smothers back. Brothers would have been any, anybody or anything, but together... It was yeah. brilliant. It was brilliant. It was also that was also what you did in my. I grew up on Long Island, and then that was Sunday mornings. You wake up, um, and you go out, you play football. Then eleven thirty, the Abbott and Costello movie was on, yep. and then one o'clock was kickoff. That's right, um, and it was great, and it was it was full. You, you, you played football because your father told you, you had to rake the lawn, so you got the lawn done by everything done by eleven thirty, so you could watch the Abbott and Costello movie. Uh, it was it was great. I mean, you, you see the stuff that they did; it's still burned into my memory. The uh, the, the the writing was great. I mean, who's on first is just brilliant. That was in the Naughty Niners movie. Yep. Um, then there's the math. I think in the Navy when they they did the math thing where he uh, Abbott adds up uh, uh, on a chalkboard. He's, ad, he's adding up math and and Costello has his own math. Oh right, um, right. And then they just start. I also love the craps other. table um, scene where 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 Lou pretends he doesn't know anything about Joe. craps, and then he's saying yeah. Little Joe when he knows every damn crap variation there is in yeah. the history of craps. And it is yep. clubhouse. <laughs> That's right, clubhouse, box cards. Well, we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and and of course, uh, you know him from Top Gear. But Adam is also a comedian and an actor. Hey, let's talk about uh, some of the cars because I love talking about people's people's cars. But w- if you had to choose a car for your mom, let's forget your favorite mm-hmm. car. What would you get your mom? One car. Well, my mom wants to. Ca- my mom's always had a Cadillac. That was a thing for my dad. My dad, I think it was. It was an obtainable, um, it was a lot of obtainable wealth, but obtainable status. You know, he could, my mother always had a Cadillac. He, that made him feel good. He was like, you know, look, take care of your family. My, my wife will drive a Cadillac, he, and my father would drive. That was the good car. Yep. He had the truck, he would go to work, and she had the Cadillac. They were used, but they were all well cared for. Uh, and I remember the first memory I had, of the first Cadillac we got was a 1970 Coupe de Ville that uh, that ugly olive green mm-hmm. and my mother flipped the cigarette out the window and it went to the back seat and burnt out the back seat <laughs> and by, by the way that's back morning. when the whole seat was one strip that long strip yeah, it was just one piece 
So we, we wake up in the morning and there's smoldering smoke coming out. Like this, this black smoke coming out of the car. is like, uh-oh, the car has not elected a pope yet. So smoke coming out of the car. My father came out, we put the fire out, we took the seat out, and we figured out that we can get lengths of pipe from the trunk all the way through the, uh, the, the bucket seat and, and then it would rest under the dash. So that burnt-out Cadillac became the plumbing truck. Well, Adam Ferrara's got a lot of car stories. We're going to talk about comedy, too. He opened for George Carlin once, and we did a great hour-long celebration of the life of George Carlin here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, more with Adam Ferrara. This is Lee Habib. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all that we do. Stories. You're listening to Bruce Springsteen's version of his own song. He shipped it off to a great R&B singer, as you all know, who did a pretty good job of turning it into a number one song. But this is a Springsteen composition, and he kills it when he's in concert. Clarence used to step in and fill that great stack sax solo. And we're talking to Adam Ferrara, and he was just talking to us about a story in which his mom torched her own family Cadillac. Uh, let's yeah. let's hear the rest of that story, Adam. So she burns out the back seat. Pop and I pull a seat out. We figure we can get lengths of copper pipe in and do, and run pipes to jobs. And we put the tools in there, and that actually became a plumbing truck. So I took my road test in that car, <laughs> and my father told me he took me out to practice in the car. And I took so I cope the, the, he tells me to be careful. He goes, "All right, listen, you're doing good. You're doing fine. Don't slam on the brakes because the torch is going to come back and hit you in the head." Okay, so that's a good tip to know. <laughs> I pulled up to. Uh, to take my road test in this car. And it still smelled like acrid smoke and, and plumbing tools. And the guy looked at I think he just passed me just to get me out of there. And the guy parallel park. I'm like, well, there's no cars. Make believe. Just do it. Okay. I had a buddy. I'll only say his first name, but his name was Anthony. His father was a little mobbed up. And he would get a new car every two years. And I always wondered what happened to the cars. And one day I found out. We're in Brooklyn. We're visiting some of his relatives. And he says, come on, we're going to go over to Sheepshead Bay. i got to get rid of my car. And I go, what do you mean you got to get rid of your car? And he goes, just come and watch. And he took it, and he brought it in an empty parking lot, and he torched it. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, only in Brooklyn, New York, do people get rid of their cars by simply setting them on fire. Yeah. We went to drive my, uh, my friend Richie, uh, Richie Minervini, who was the godfather of Long Island Comics. He gave us all our start. He owned the comedy club. And he likes Alante's. So there was a guy next to him had an, had an Alante. He took it for a ride. He was selling it. So we took it for a test ride. Uh, and we're on Hempstead Turnpike. And he comes to the screeching stop. And he looks and he goes, oh, thank God we didn't hit any. Boom! And the guy rear-ends him in the car. <laughs> so we bring the car back to the guy who was a little, a little he, he knew some, he was a little mobbed up. So we bring him back to the car. He goes, hey, well, listen, we'd like to buy the car, but that big dent in the back. He's like, what dent? And the guy came out. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, I'm so sorry. He goes, nah, you did me a favor. He called, he goes, guys, take care of this. He came out, he took the doors, he like took the doors off, he wrenched the thing, he, he banged it all up, he called the insurance company, he goes, you just made me money. 
<laughs> you know, I'll never forget. I was watching 60 Minutes about two years ago, and it was the young Gotti talking about what it was like to be the son of John Gotti. And he told this story about how a dentist had mistakenly had an accident and killed one of the young Gotti cousins, like a 14-year-old kid. It was just an accident. And some... On the bike. Yeah, on a bike. And so some wannabe mobster decided that the best way to prove his bona fides to, to Mr. Gotti was to make the dentist disappear. And the dentist disappeared. Mm-hmm. And Gotti got really mad. Like, you don't go killing dentists? But the guy killed yeah. the dentist. And he said that was his great, that was the thing that ate away at him the most, is that, that, that those mobsters didn't just kill bad guys. Every once in a while, they just killed anybody they felt like it at them. And I think if you've grown yeah. up in Long Island or around Brooklyn, you've met these guys, mm-hmm. and you know they're, they seem fun until one second they're not. I want to talk about, we came in with Pink Cadillac, and you know, that's, I think, Springsteen's ode to the car as escape and also the car as a romantic outlet for young people and older people. Uh, talk about your first car, your first great date or love. Well, the Caddy was the first car, and that didn't last too long. Uh, but the first car that I got uh, in my family, we had this thing in our family called the Dead Relative Inheritance Program. So my father, my grandfather passes away, and he had just bought an 81 Dodge Aries K. Which is crap with a K. Oh, it is. All the K cars. Oh, it was terrible. But that's the car I got. And it was brand new. I mean, because he had just imported it. I mean, it had less than 10,000 miles on it when I got it. And, uh, and, you know, that was my car. It had velour interior. It it was white. It was a two-door SE coupe. It was terrible. But it still smelled like the Denobili cigars he smoked. (laughs) So I would drive that to school. And I would park it in the teacher's lot because it looked like a teacher's car. So... I remember I wanted to sell. I wanted to sell it to my math teacher. He wanted to buy it. My father goes, "You're not selling the car," because he knew I would buy something. You know, I'd buy a '67 GTO exactly. and drive away and leak oil. Yeah, and, um, and you'd wrap it around a telephone pole in no time. Probably, yeah. Probably. Hey, so, let's 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 talk about drivers in New York uh, and and your thoughts about New York drivers as opposed to drivers in other parts of the country as you've traveled around the country touring as a working comedian. Well, it's Death Race 2000 in New York because the lines on the road are just a suggestion. <laughs> you know, you got to get where you're going. Uh, and, it's, and there's too many people, and especially in the city. When I first drove in the city, and my first comedy car when I started doing comedy was a, uh, I had an 85 Ford Thunderbird Turbo Coupe uh, with a five-speed. So I had a manual transition cutting through New York City. I was like, and that, I had no blood in my left leg for about three years. <laughs> Because of the clutch, oh, but yeah. that car was great. I mean, the fuel filter went, the headliner started falling apart, but it was it was a fun car. You know, it was fun to drive. I put a, a ton of miles on it. Um, the only thing I, I didn't like about the car is the, that had the keyless. You remember the, the keyless? You had the touchpad on the side of the, uh, yep, the combination yep. on the side of the door. Yep. Well, after a while, the numbers you use wear off, so it's not that hard to figure out what the combination is. <laughs> exactly, it's really <laughs> stupid. Uh, so. Know? So tell me this: You worked, uh, you, you you worked, and are a working comedian, uh, and you mm-hmm. once opened for George Carlin, and we just did an hour on Carlin. And oh you, yeah, you, you could you can't describe to people the brilliance, but if you're opening for a guy like that, first of all, what are you learning every night? But second, what's it like to to start out opening for a legend? First of all, the audience wants to hear Carlin, not you. But, oh, yeah. Well, here's what happened. I was supposed to headline the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach. It's a great club. Yep. Um, and it's set up like a little theater. So my manager calls me and said, uh, listen, they got to they gotta move your weekend. 
I go, what? He goes, yeah, but they gave you the option if you want to open. And right away, the ego kicks in. I'm not opening. What friggin' carnival act? What sword swallow a thing? I'm not opening for anybody. <laughs> right. And they're like, who do, who do they want me to open for? They're like, George Collin. I'm like, does he need a ride? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pick him up. So, of course, I took the gig. So I went on. The, the MC goes up. I went up. I did my, my, my 20 minutes or whatever the hell I did. I walk off stage, and there's this little man standing right in the, in the, in the darkness, right by, in the wings. And he went, you're funny. And I went, and you're Colin. <laughs> and we just started talking, and he missed his intro. He was talking like he goes, I like that dick clock joke you did. And, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no, he, and I'm, I'm just talking to him, and all of a sudden they introduce him. The crowd goes up, and he looks at me and goes, is that me? I go, it ain't me. And he ran on stage, and he was late. Um, and uh, I went home, and my wife was with me after the show, and he took pictures. We continued talking after the show. Just so gracious, so nice. And he goes, all right. I said, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went, I went home and I was elated. I was going to tell my wife, Carlin, just watched my whole set. And then I realized, Carlin just watched my whole set. I can't do any of that material again. Right. Nine specials. I'm not going to do the same thing again. So now I'm in, a, I'm in this anxiety-ridden thing going through my notebooks, torturing my wife playing the game called Honey, Is This Funny? Right. And I had to put a whole other set together. Oh, that's torture. Um, and then, and the same thing happened the next night. I did it, did the set. I walked off in the wings. He goes, funny again. I go, you're still calling. And we just started talking. <laughs> so sweet. He took pictures with me. And that was right before he did his last special. You know, it, um, it, it, I'll tell you something. Though. Away after that. So I'm you, glad I actually got a chance to you, connect with him. You are lucky to have connected with him. And I, I'd heard that about Carlin all the time. My sister was a house singer at Catch a Rising Star after Pat Benatar got her gig. And what was amazing? Oh, you know Newman. You know, Rob. Oh, of course, of course. And and yeah. and and Robin Williams was a sweetheart. He would come in there and work his material before he would go on Carson. He'd come in three, four nights in a row, five. And let me tell you, it was the same thing. Like my sister would sing a song or two. He would walk over and say, "Nice song." He'd sit and listen to the other comics. He would tell them he really mm-hmm. liked them and knew he had some issues, but he didn't take it out on people around him. And it's so nice. You are so lucky to have had that time with Carlin. And that you met an actual human being who was a comic and an entertainer, because so many of the entertainers, and as you know, so many of the comedians just have really, really troubled lives. They don't really have time to yeah. encourage a young comedian. But what a what a thing that was for you, Adam, to have George Carlin listen to your set and tell you you were funny. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and quote a joke. He goes, "That's a great joke." I mean, to have that, and Richard Pryor did that for me too. Is at the uh, American Comedy Awards, I got nominated a couple of times. At the American Comedy Awards out here in L.A., and uh, they show a clip, and uh, Pryor's at the table next to me. He was in the wheelchair then, um, and uh, and I, my friend Mary Ellen Hooper, pushed me to go up and say hello because Pryor to me was, you know, that's what really just really moved me. Yep. And he goes, "You're never going to get an opportunity again." And I worked through my anxiety and with Mr. Pryor. It's a pleasure. Just to, I just want to shake your hand, and tell you thank you. He goes, "I saw your clip. You're funny." <laughs> that's awesome. That is, How great is that? That is just, you know what? It's nice to maybe hit that height where you're no longer competing with other guys and you can just be generous, Adam. You're not, you don't care anymore about other people. You, you're happy to compliment them. This is Lee Habib. We've been speaking with Adam Farrar, and, and he's a terrific stand-up, and you've seen him in all kinds of TV shows. And, of course... Well, you've seen him in one of our favorite car shows. And Adam, thanks so much for joining us. AdamFerrara.com is where you can go to see if he's coming to a town near you.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on our show, we tell stories about everything from music to cars to sports, the American dream, periodically public policy. But we also like to talk about where and how Americans are living, where and when are they moving and why. And when we came across Joel Kotkin's book, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, it sparked a lively discussion, and we decided in our studio that we were going to drill down. We picked four or five books a year to drill down on, and one of them was Greg Ipp's terrific book, Foolproof, and he's the managing economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. And it was also all about risk and safety, and it was fascinating. We ended up doing a multi-part series, and we're about to do the same with Joel's book, and we welcome Joel to the show. Good to be here. You bet. And Joel, you heard Chicago coming in from Frank Sinatra. We wanted to start off. Chicago's population, uh, a couple of my guys here on Research pointed out, is the same 2.7 million uh, today as it was in 1920. And Houston, uh, a city that generally sort of attacked for its ugliness and its sprawl and its lack of uh, unified zoning cohesion, is about to overcome Chicago. Uh, let's start there and talking about where people are moving from and to. Well, of course, you know the city limits are, are somewhat limited, but of course, what um, and that sort of that, today the vast majority of the population in virtually all the metropolitan areas is outside the city core or even the city limits. But look, the the reality is that Chicago, which has a very powerful PR machine, you know, gets very nice mentions, um, you know, fairly often is a city that essentially um, is, has lost its position as the business center or is certainly losing the position of, of, the, of the middle part of the country. That's really going, I think, fundamentally to Dallas. Um, it's lost its manufacturing and industrial status largely to Houston. Um, and it's a city with a you know, very high crime rate. Um, it's... Uh, it's got terrible debt issues. I mean, Houston has its own debt issues, but not quite as bad as Chicago. Um, it's a city that's been terribly mismanaged for a very long time, uh, and um, is clearly you know, not the city it was certainly in 1920, and 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 probably not the city it was in uh, 1960. I mean, it is it has been on a constant sort of gradual decline, even though at the same time. It's downtown is maybe the most beautiful in the country. There are neighborhoods in Chicago that you you would say these are the, some of the great neighborhoods in the United States, but they're also just huge expenses. You want to talk about ugly, huge expenses on the west side, on the south side, that are are horrific places and 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 with very very little hope um, and very high crime. So. Uh, you know, basically, what Houston has done is Houston has you know, got lower costs. It's been somewhat less corrupt um and uh, the other thing is that people continue to move to houston you know people will say well you know chicago is a great place and houston's a horrible place and how come people migrate to a horrible place and leave a wonderful place you would ask that question yep you would and, and by the way joel in a, in a piece i had written uh for national view called southern like me because i moved from new jersey to oxford mississippi and people in the north looked at me funny and i and they, particularly on the race issue, were looking at me funny. And I said, look, 
You know, there's this guy, Joel Kotkin, who's been keeping track of this, tracking census data, and more black people have now moved back to the South than escaped the South to move to the North in the 1940s and 50s. And if the South is such a racist, awful place, why are black people moving back to it? Uh, black people are human beings like everyone else, and think that they move for opportunity, and not just opportunity per se in terms of jobs, but a quality of life, what you can afford to have. Um, I mean, when you you know, I always get a kick out of this. That some of the cities that are most um, progressive, if you want to use that terminology, on race issue, you know, most sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, most uh, raging about uh, about Donald Trump's uh, you know, nativism and racism, which you know, which is something certainly the people should react against. But the, what they're in the cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boston, all the cities that are actually having their own form of ethnic cleansing. The black and, in some cases, Latino populations are, are, are shrinking. In many cases, we're small to start with, um, as these cities have gentrified. So, you know, the, the, you know, you don't have a huge number of black people moving to Seattle. I mean, the, the way a place like Seattle or Portland um, uh, runs, it just there is no real room for a, a black community. And I think African Americans and the ones I've spoken to, particularly in places like Houston, um, feel they feel at home. They feel this is where they were from originally. This is this is a place where uh, where you know the chance of owning a home is much much higher than it might be um, in in a place like New York or Los Angeles. And so that's why they're moving, because, you know, they're not just moving from the Northeast. They're moving from California as well. Yep, yep, all over the country. And what's interesting is when I first got here, Joel, I was stunned at the level of integration here compared to New Jersey, which had some of the highest levels of segregation. I grew up there. There was one black family in my whole town in Bergen County, and all the black people lived in one place. All the white people lived in another place. And I go to a, I go to a school district where 35% of the kids or African-American or Hispanic, and the kids are together, and all through the state you find that. And I think through the South you find black and white living together in ways that you don't see in many other places, Joel. Well, there's, there's also, you know, there is a, you know, a, a, for all the, the nasty history, which is certainly there, yep. there's, there's, a, there's a cultural um, similarity. The, the music that, that people like, the food that they eat, the, the, the way they, they, they worship have tremendous... Uh, similarities um, that are very strong. You know, it's it, it's always funny when I when I would travel around the world and you'd go to places um, in uh, let's say in, in Asia where there were Indians and Pakistanis who would be at each other's throat at home. Right. But but when they're in a different environment, they say, "Well, you know, we we eat curry. We have the same. Right. We have you know a lot of the same history." And so I think that there's a there's a sense of of being at home in the South. And you know, uh, at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, we did a study on um, on best cities for minorities, and, and and one of them was obviously African Americans. And what was funny is, thirteen of the fifteen best places for African Americans measured by the whole sense of a series of categories were in the old Confederacy. I just thought that was kind of ironic. Well, it's, it's, it's ironic, but yet for people who've lived here, they'll, they'll always say, look, the laws separated us. The Klan was here. It was horrible. But, you know, we knew each other. We really did know each other. And I think that, and, and as you said, that shared common culture is overwhelming. Um, but, you know, it, the more I get to spend time here, 
The more that doesn't only not surprise me, what surprises me is that no one knows this story in the country, Joel. It's a, I think it's one of the great untold stories in America. Well, I, I, I think that it's, be, you know, in part because, you know, prejudice comes in all different forms. And one of the prejudices are things that may have been true in 1965 or 1975, but you know, that's 40 years ago, are stuck in people's minds, you know, um, and, and they have a hard time changing them. You know, it's like views of the suburbs. The suburbs are X, Y, Z, you know, i.e., they're all white. Right. They don't allow blacks. They, right. Uh, they don't have any culture. The food is terrible. Well, a lot of that was true 40 years ago. But you know what? If you want a good Indian meal in Houston today, you go to Sugar Land. If you want to have good Vietnamese food in Southern California, you go to Orange County. Right. Um, because you know what? The immigrants, like the African-Americans who can do it, are moving to suburbs, and they want to move to nicer suburbs. They don't want to move to suburbs that maybe are right near the ghetto but are still very, um, very poor. Right. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion with Joel Kotkin, a book we love and that we're digging into, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're rejoined by Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, and he also happens to run a think tank, Center for Opportunity Urbanism, and that's based in Houston, Texas. Joel, thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. And Joel, a quick question on technology and the role it's playing in how and where we live, and, and also this idea of the of the arts and food moving out to places where people live. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about the role of technology in all this and how that relates to where and how Americans are moving and living. Well, one of the things that technology is allowing is for people to have access to information, culture, in a way that they didn't have if they were isolated, let's say, in a small town. I mean, you're in Oxford, Mississippi. If you're you're in Oxford, Mississippi. You get you can get the same bad programming from Hollywood that we get here in Southern California. Right. Um, you know, so those cultural gaps is sort of what the Karl Marx called the idiocy of rural life, really doesn't exist anymore. So you you really have almost a more free flowing um, set of options for people. So one of the things that we're seeing is, for instance, among seniors um, and particularly the what we would call the young old the people in their late 50s, early 60s, uh, many of them, if, you know, they say, oh, they're moving back to the city. Actually, the numbers don't show that at all. Where they're moving, if anything, is further out or to small towns like Oxford. If you've got a little bit of scratch that you made in Houston and you want to, 
you know, you, you don't want to retire. You're not ready for a wheelchair. But, you know, you, you would like to live in a smaller town. Maybe in some cases you can go to a place that's a little bit less expensive. Um, and, and you want to slow things down. But because of technology, you're not cut off. You can still, if you're, if you're a financial trader, you can still do it. If you're a journalist, you can still write. Um, and so we really have, have sort of opened things up in ways that, that um, really weren't the case before. You know, I remember as a young kid driving from New York, where I grew up, um, across the country, and literally good coffee would stop in, in Manhattan, and you didn't see another good cup of coffee practically till you got to San Francisco. Right. You, maybe you'd get one in Chicago if you were lucky. Um, and now, I mean, as you know, as uh, I'm the president and sometimes mediocre as, let's say, Starbucks is, nevertheless, you can get a decent cup of coffee, you know, at, at every truck stop in America. So, so you know, I think that, that, that culture, information, food, uh, I'm constantly astounded by um, how much you can get very good food, sometimes very fine dining in cities that you never would have thought would have had such things. Um, so I think the options are growing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is happening and I talk about in the human city is some of the great urban environments in America, let's say you know, New York City being the premier one, but you know, parts of Chicago, San Francisco, um, uh, are you know, parts of Seattle. But the, but the problem is, is that these places are extraordinarily expensive. And if you are not really rich and you have a family, they're almost out of the question. But now you can go to a Columbus. You can go to uh, a what we might call a second-tier city, a Pittsburgh, or um, and certainly to a Dallas or a Houston, um, and and actually have many of the same things that you used to only have in those in those very very elite environments. So there are now many more options, urban, suburban, and in the countryside than existed in the past. And by the way, a great thing for consumers and a great thing for the American people in the end, Joel. I think so. I think, you know, one of the big uh, points that I try to make in the human city, and it's something I think is, is something I talk about a lot, is we need to have more options. You know, the, the sort of prevailing, if you say, New York Times version of the, of the universe is everything, you know, aspires to be Manhattan or you aspire to be like, you know, Aspen. I mean, those are sort of the <laughs> right, things. Right, right. And... and the reality is most people can't afford and probably don't even want to live in Manhattan, particularly because you, they can't live in Manhattan the way uh, Michael Bloomberg does. They, they, you know, living in Manhattan means living in a small apartment, um, probably having to pay for private schools if you have kids. Um, it's not that pleasant if you don't have a lot of money. Um, there are now many options, and that's why I believe that the middle part of the country, you know, the central time zone, if you want to start that, mm-hmm. is really the one place where uh, upward mobility and the middle class can still have a middle class life. Having a middle class life in, let's say, Southern California, where I live, is incredibly difficult for young families. Um, the chance of buying a home, let's say, here in Orange County, where Houses seven eight hundred thousand dollars for something even remotely acceptable. Well, how many people can break into that market? I mean, we we see here in our own neighborhood lots of kids in their twenties and thirties living in the homes owned by their parents. Yep. Because they cannot afford. Whereas if you go to Dallas, you go to Houston, and certainly to many small towns, a, a, a young person who's earning, 
uh, fifty thousand. Let's say um, their spouse is also you know, earning fifty thousand, a hundred thousand a year. Hundred thousand dollars a year buys you a pretty damn good lifestyle in suburban Houston or suburban Atlanta or suburban uh, Dallas, and it buys you nothing. Basically, it buys you a third world lifestyle in Southern California. Now, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you're single, and you're two two people making a hundred thousand dollars with no children. They they can live you know a fairly nice life in Southern California, but once you decide to have a family, the whole equation changes. Indeed, you know I was watching once with some friends from New York, uh, the Home Improvement Channel and the Gaines family, and they do fixer uppers in Waco, Texas, and you see the price of a house, and it's a pretty nice house, and it's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty five. And my friends in New York and New Jersey are going, oh come on, that can't be. Where is this? And I'm going. Waco is a big town. It's not a little town. It's 125,000, 150,000 people, and it's growing. And this is why it's growing. Right, and, th- and this, is, this is something that, you know, I spent a, a good, um, well, I'd say 45 minutes with a reporter for the New York Times who quoted me in an article today. And he's a very nice guy and, and, and fairly open-minded. But when I started to explain, well, well look, if these uh, dense urban environments that are very expensive were so preferable, then why are people moving to other places? I mean, if, if you know, there was another article also in the Times, you know, which is sort of the ideological center for this kind of thinking, saying, well, the best places are Massachusetts. You know, this is where everybody should be like Massachusetts. Well, okay, i tell you about Massachusetts. It's overwhelmingly white. You start there. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, very, it's getting very old. And guess what? People are leaving Massachusetts, and they're coming to Texas. So, in other words, you're telling me that they're leaving the great place and going to a crappy place. Um, I don't think people are as stupid as, uh, as the media thinks they are. Well, I think some of the media actually do. I mean, I'll never forget reading Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? And he was really saying, what's the matter with Kansans? Because they were, in his mind, voting against their political interests. And by the way, he wasn't accounting for cultural things. It was all economics to him. And meanwhile, he wasn't even examining economics properly and affordability and issues like that, let alone the culture. Um, but I actually think that people uh, on, on a particular part of the political spectrum, and I think this is the far left, actually, are now of the mindset that if you don't agree with them or you don't live like they do, you're crazy or stupid. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. I actually, in the book, I quote the, this magazine, the weekly magazine in, in Seattle called The Stranger, where they talk about, well, you know, all the good people are living in the dense urban centers, and, and, the, and the people out in the countryside are fatter and stupider and, you know, you know less enlightened. And I'm saying, that, well, wait a minute. The way I was brought up, you know, being enlightened meant being tolerant and trying to understand people, not to dismiss them. I mean, yep. they don't even see it. So as, you know, as, as I was talking to this, this, this report from the Times, he said the prejudice is so deep-seated that they don't even see it as prejudice. Yep. Um, I mean, we have this kind of lack of, of understanding of really, you know, what our actions are and what we're really saying. So, you know, I mean, you can, you can, you can have people who will say people in the suburbs are dumb. People in the suburbs are, 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 or in small towns are, are evil and all this other stuff. But as you point out, very often those people have more day-to-day contact with people of other ethnicities and other classes than they would if they lived on the, uh, you know, on the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
And by the way, Joel, it assumes that these same people in these small towns, a guy like me who lived in Brooklyn and grew up right next to New York City and still loves New York and still loves to visit, actually chooses a place like Oxford. So I knew the difference. And how many Americans travel? I mean, there's a thing called a plane. They're smart enough to go to Broadway, see things they love, but come back to the place they want to live and raise a family. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to close out right here, and then we'll do this again next week, Joel. I love this subject. Well, I think basically, I think what you what you have to be, you know, very clear about is that, you know, people make choices, and what America really should be about is choices. We shouldn't be dragooned to live one way or another, um, and we we have different uh, ways of life that we have at different stages of our life, and we should be accommodating that. That's so true. When we when we rejoin you next week, we're going to dig into the different stages of life and where people are living and moving from, depending on how old they are and where they are in their life. We're talking to Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling your stories. And that's what this book is about. It's about you. It's about the American people, and this show is heard in big cities and small towns for just that reason. More after these messages.